G'day Footyology listeners, Roko here. Enjoy our podcast? Well, you can become an official Footyology podcast supporter simply by using the supporter feature through ACAST. There's no subscription or regular commitment, just the sheer satisfaction that comes with knowing you've kept the debt collectors from our door. No, just kidding. It does help though. If you want to get started, you just need to follow the support this show link in the show description. Thanks again. And now let's get on with it. Welcome to Footyology with Rowan Connolly and Mark Fine. G'day everyone, welcome to episode 10 of the Footyology podcast. Well, we're nearly there, grand final week coming up. Two massive preliminary finals to talk about. Richmond playing Adelaide in the big grand final. And joining me to talk all about it is my regular co-host, Mark Fine. G'day, Fine. G'day, Rowan. It seems like the grand final, the competition deserves, the two teams deserve. They've really, in the finals, actually have exactly the same form. They've thrashed both of their opponents, identical opponents. It looks like a great week ahead for the build-up and, of course, the grand final. Yeah, you can't ask so much more than the two best teams of the season playing off. I reckon that's what we've got. Let's not muck around, get straight into the business of talking all about it. On Footyology, that's a wrap. Right, well, let's start by uh, going through two preliminary finals. Friday night, of course, Adelaide making pretty short workage along and Saturday twilight, uh, early evening, late afternoon, whatever you like to call it. Richmond didn't make short work of GWS, but they got them in the end. Two pretty convincing victories, setting up a great granny. What did you think of both of the preliminaries? Well, before I talk about the preliminaries, are you more comfortable with the week off after the end of the home and away season now that normal transmission has been resumed, Rowan. I know you were a little upset with last year's small sample. Yeah, look, I I think there's certainly evidence the other way now. So we've had, you know, one year where both qualifying final winners have bowed out and another year where they've both got through. So I'm prepared to accept two smaller sample size, but um, I still don't like it. I, I still think it impacts on momentum and I still think it potentially negates advantages the top teams have. But, um, yeah, look, it was a, a fair argument for the opposition, if you like. The games themselves, as you said, uh, they were different. There's no question that they were different because the Adelaide-Geelong game was, in keeping with many of the finals this year, a fizzer. Adelaide, uh, 10 minutes into the game, had assumed an authority that they would not relinquish, even when Geelong responded in the second quarter with... Dangerfield really lifting his rating and Murdoch. Adelaide had the answers. That game was a script easily read early and there were no twists or turns. But on Saturday afternoon, there were some twists or turns and it was a quite intriguing battle. Well, let's deal with Friday night first. Um, you couldn't have asked, you know, if they were going to be subject to nerves, they'd lost four preliminaries since their last premiership. Um, they've blown a couple of home finals previously. But you couldn't have settled the nerves any more effectively than they did. They were just on right from the word go, weren't they? I mean, it was two goals in under three minutes of memory. Yeah, they assumed an authority in the game that even, I believe, transgressed the... Uh, um, surpassed, I should say. Transcended. Transcended, that's the word. Transcended, surpassed the scoreboard because their midfield was immediately clicked back into gear. 
you've been a huge fan of Matt Crouch's all season. Sloan was energetic, alive and fit and well, almost um, like a, a cult, cultish almost in his start to the game, over the top, which was great for a final. It meant that he was engaged. Sam Jacobs was, again, a powerhouse and Zach Smith looked a little um, pale compared to him even after 10 minutes. So if you get the scoreboard... It's all systems go in the boiler room. And the what I love about the Crows is I reckon they've got the perfect balance of inside grunt and outside flair. And they bought the grunt early and they got the ball on the outside and then did they exhibit some flair. But um, they were so hard at it and the pressure, you know, Eddie Betts's role in those first two goals um, – that, you know, diving in to create the spills for Cameron, which gave them their first goal. Then he kicked the second. Uh, I mean, he just lights them up, so he was fantastic. And the bloke who, I mean, I, I love this guy, but he was that was almost his best game, I reckon, Rory Laird. What an absolute gun he is. Yeah, uh, Rory Laird, they run off the half-back line, and it's a real pity because Brody Smith was in Absolute career best form when he did his knee. In fact, he kicked the first goal of that final and there was no goal like it to match it against GWS. They have been able to fit in Paul Seedsman. Now, Seedsman kicked two very important goals. As I said, they had the answers when Geelong came and Seedsman was, in fact, the respondent. Two goals in the second quarter. I think they were both in the second quarter. In fact, I'm sure they were. He's got a long leg. He likes to run and he takes advantage of... The fact that the Adelaide back line is an attacking force and by the time you've taken care of Laird and Lever himself can, you know, as an intercept mark, be uh, an attacking presence, uh, Seedsman slips under your guard and he actually goes further and deeper and is more likely to kick a goal than any of them. It's an interesting mix. Well, they slip under your guard in every department. Probably, I mean, forward line's self-explanatory, so not there. But in defence, I mean, but they negate really well as well. I thought Talia was really important with his job on Hawkins. Talia and, I mean, Talia's a really professional defender. And Lever, in that uh, first final, when the marking conditions weren't ideal against GWS, he he went the fist. He became an excellent spoil. Hardigan underrated. Kelly is uh, growing in stature as we as we watch him develop. Confident in his strength, one on one strength, and his ability to actually get the ball and run with the ball and use the ball. I think we've seen him grow on field. Ditto the midfield. I mean, we've talked about this a bit already, but you know that little wobbly patch they had mid season when Sloan was getting shut down. And they didn't have enough response beyond him. But have a look at it at the moment. You've got Sloan. You've got the two Crouches. You've got uh, Riley Knight. You've got Rory Atkins. You've got Richard Douglas. You've now got Seedsman thrown into the mix. You've got Charlie Cameron when he goes in there. Or, you know, running amok as a small forward with five goals. Yep. I mean, they, they've got some fantastic weapons. I'd argue that they've got more match-winning types than um, any other side that was in the finals this season. So, look, they've been the best side all year. They've been on top of the ladder, well, during the home and away season, they're on top of the ladder for 17 of the 23 rounds. They won their first six games. You know, they had that little wobbly patch, and then they recovered really well. And it's only fitting that they get a, a chance to win a premiership now. They've played the best football all year, and 
I think they've been the best side of the year by, uh, in the end, well, not quite the end, but until grand final day, uh, by a reasonable margin. It sounds like I don't need to ask you for your tip on grand final day, but we'll get to that we'll get to a that. little bit later. Because the game against Geelong proved uh, a couple of things, and that is that obviously they were forced to replace McGovern. Odden's come into the side now. McGovern needs to be um, closely looked at. And uh, that will play out later on in the week. It's he's one a, or the other. He's apparently you'd much rather a fit McGovern than a fit Otten. Mm. But uh, you know they will make do no matter what. They against Geelong proved absolutely that they have got a forward line that functions on different levels. It's not just about getting over the top. It really isn't. When the ball comes to ground. We saw how dangerous Cameron and Betts were. Lynch continues to drive hard up and down the flanks. Taylor Walker is—he's not a—he's not a um, four-quarter goal-kicking machine, but he can kick them from so far out that he can actually—you know—he's sort of like the can accept that little 15-meter chip on the 50-meter line that's irrelevant normally and go back and kick a goal. That can be a match buster in a grand final. Well, all their tools are mobile. All yep. their smalls are capable of taking a mark, i.e. Cameron's hanger and, and Eddie Betts well, you don't does want it to, regularly. you don't want to be one-on-one with Eddie Betts aerially. Yeah, so, I mean, they, they cover all bases, I reckon, and just a sensational team. Let's talk about the Cats uh, bro- more briefly. Um I, you know, look, they did better than I thought. I didn't even tip them in my ace. So, you know, I, I thought that they'd slide. Uh, they didn't slide. But I always felt all season that even their best wasn't a brilliant best. They, they were, you know, it's a more workmanlike Geelong these days than the sides that were winning flags. And for me, they just lack a little bit of depth and they lack a little bit of class. They finished second on the ladder. In 2009, they finished second to St Kilda on the ladder. The, this team is so far inferior to that mm. team. Of course, there are two new sides in the competition, so everybody might be a bit more inferior. Just on that, you mentioned that last week. I actually ended up writing a piece and went through the bottom six of those two sides just by basis of comparison. Yep. The bottom six of their side in 2009 would have been uh, Varco, Shannon Burns, at that stage, Tom Hawkins. Maybe Hunt. Uh, he didn't play. Yep. Uh, he was injured. Yep. Um, Max Rook. Um, this is the bottom six. Yeah, exactly. Wow. And and the bottom six now, well, you know, well, Zach Guthrie didn't play, but, yep. you know, Lang. Um, Parfitt's Parsons yeah, of this world. Et cetera, et cetera. And, and look, that could be mirrored by a few sides, I think. I had an interesting yeah, it, it, discussion it, with Dermot Brereton about the quality of size just having dropped a few degrees each, each year. But... What really worries me about the Cats now, I'm, I'm staggered that they were the, I'm pretty sure they were the second highest scoring team of the season, and lately I've looked at them and just wondered how. Um, you know, they kicked some cricket scores early in the year, but Hawkins really lost form, and Dan Menzel clearly lost form, so what else was there? They were reduced to playing danger up forward, and wasn't that the classic robbing Peter to pay Paul scenario, because he yep. froze up there while their midfield was getting monstered and they lost the early initiative. Which is exactly what happened the last time they played them because when they played Adelaide in Adelaide earlier this year, it was the week after they beat Hawthorne, yeah. which was the Dangerfield forward game. So Dangerfield started forward against Adelaide, 
by half time they were out of the game and he went into the midfield after half time and they made a good run at Adelaide. They clearly need two danger fields. Their back line's interesting. They're already again then you know, the the corpse of season two thousand and seventeen is barely cold. Ablett, Stringer is said to want to go to Geelong. That means Devon Smith who wants to go there can't go there. They're a bigger destination than Bali on a footy trip after the season. They suddenly are the place to be. That's interesting in itself, though, isn't it? Because they've lost a third of their back line from now, haven't they, yep. with Lonergan and Mackey? So I'd be, personally, I'd be looking at replacing them first. They've become a pretty enigmatic side with the likes of Stringer and we don't know what the future of Motlop is, but imagine a forward line with Stringer and Reese Stanley and... You'd, um, you'd not really be sure what you're going to get on any given day, well, would you? you mentioned Motlop. Credit where it's due. I think he really revived his standing a bit in the finals. He he was actually good. You know, he, he stood up. So maybe Standings or value? Um, oh, you still reckon they might get rid of him? Well, he's a, he's a free agent. I think yeah. he might rid himself of Geelong and cash in. Yeah, interesting one. Interesting one. Yeah, look, they're in an interesting place, but, um, you know, look, they've at least sort of basically held their ground since they were winning flags, but by next year it'll be seven years since they've won one, and it goes quick. Um, now, that's some, let's move on to Saturday. Um, the time going quickly between flags. Uh, Tiger Army could relate to that, of course, 37 since their last one, but... Um, haven't they been a great combination all year? I mean, I've said it a few times. I think there are at least three other lists that are better quality lists than theirs. But as a, a, a unit, I can't think of a better team than them. The way they combine, not only in defence, but midfield and up forward, where, you know, by necessity, they've sort of been forced into a smaller forward setup, but it's actually worked to their advantage. And be under no illusions, this is not the preferred forward line set up for Damien Hardwick. He toyed with Todd Elton during the year. Well, that just shows how desperate he was for a tall forward to replace Griffiths after he had his concussion problems. I mean, Todd Elton, in the end, could not make the Richmond VFL team. They were desperately seeking another tall forward. In the end, they went without. And what they've created is a forward line that certainly has Dustin Martin as a presence, and the Ascendance of ascendancy of Prestia has been important in the second half of the year because Prestia, along with Lambert and Coxon, can be trusted to marshal the midfield and allow Martin forward more often. Brings up an interesting selection option that they have. But their forward line, it's got a lot of small forwards, but they're all licensed to fly for the ball. The idea is to contest to bring to ground. They're not little forwards who wait at the bottom of the pack and see guys just stand and outmark them. Castagna was flying around on mm. the weekend. We know Rioli can fly. Shane Edwards is a known flyer. These guys actually compete manfully in the air and the others profit at the ground. There, there was a, a good... Um, you know, I was covering the game for footyology.com.au. Match reports up there if you want to read, but... Right near the end of the first quarter, tackles inside 50. And this is at a stage where, you know, the scores were practically level. They'd already laid 10 tackles inside 50 by quarter time or just before quarter time. Yep. So um, it's been a treat for them. And 
I think what they do, you know, they do play a finals-type footy. They're not spectacular. They don't get many spectacular goals, you know, if it's not dusty. They really grind it. Uh, but once they get the ball out of the traffic, the the number of smalls in that side, they can really counterattack quickly and, and catch sides on the break. And, and they, they play the G beautifully. It is their ground. Yeah. And they well, play it. They know how to stall a ball on a flank. Yeah, 11 wins out of 13 there this year now and the yep. two losses by uh, a kick and Fremantle after the siren, Sydney yes. a minute before the yeah, siren. Yeah, nine points, Sydney. Yeah, so um, it's a great track record. Actually, on that score, just quickly, Adelaide's track record there over the last three years is pretty reasonable too. They don't play well there. I'm telling you, there are two games this year that I stand out for me. They were very fortunate to beat Carlton there. Jenkins saved them in the last quarter. Walker was lost. And they we've discussed their draw against Collingwood at the MCG. Mm. Oh, we'll get to that, though. But I'm like, saying a fascinating, yeah. a fascinating glass half full, no, glass it, half empty, that one. It's certainly a factor. Let, let's concentrate on Saturday. Um, GWS, uh, for me, that game was a reflection of their whole year. A... They had a key injury that knocked them about, and that was Shield, losing Shield. That was a huge blow. B, they, I don't know if you call it over-finessing, but they're always, they don't play the percentages enough. You know, there are times when, a good example of it, and look, it was bad luck, but Patton takes that mark well within kicking distance, you know, no angle to speak of, just on quarter time, dishes off for handball to green. Siren goes. Now, you know, nine times out of ten in a final, you'd just take the kick, wouldn't you? So that cost them a goal. Um, but I thought that Richmond, and again, getting back to Richmond, that pressure they're able to apply, it's not necessarily reflected in the numbers. In fact, it was really interesting that the Giants had more, a uh, heap more disposals, about 60 more disposals. They had more contested ball, more clearances, more inside 50s, and yet Richmond won comfortably. And I think... It's almost that inferred pressure after a while, and I thought a good example of that was what I thought was almost the pivotal, or the moment when you knew the Giants were gone. It was when Stevie J should have taken the shot for goal, didn't have the confidence to take it. About a minute later, he gets another opportunity, centres the ball to a posse of three Richmond players. It's turned over, goes down the other end, and then Aiden Court, trying to create something, goes to one on three in, in their back 50, Edwards gets a goal, and it was all over. So, you know, that pressure plays on the minds of opponents as well, I think. To me, the game actually played out exactly to script, which is good. It, it, it was true to their form, their season, and it, allowed G, it will allow GWS to go away and see where they are deficient. Their, their problem is that their goals are textbook goals generally. Mm. They work the ball through midfield possessions to a player, turned out to be often Lockie Whitfield, who can deliver the ball to a leading forward who will go back and have a shot at goal, hopefully kick it. They have very few impromptu goals scored in the forward line. The only one I can think of was the one that Callum Ward kicked off the goal line. Yep. And that was really an error by Richmond. They seemed to have that situation covered and it was knocked backwards of the pack. But every time the ball falls at the feet of players in the GWS forward line, there's no mayhem, scramble, desperation-type football that results in goals. They are really 
copybook set play type uh, of a football team. Jonathan Patton sums them up to me. He's a very nice player. He kicks, he marks, he can kick long, and he can mark big. But he doesn't have any football now. Watch how Charlie Dixon plays. Every time he goes for the ball, he's thinking, do I bust the pack open? Do I knock it to my team's advantage? Do I bowl over a player? Do I do something? Or am I marking and kicking? For Patton, there's only one Patton. It's mark and kick. And so structured is he, they had a little glimmer in that last quarter. He picks the ball up between the goalpost and the point post, and he instinctively just kicks it straight through the points. He doesn't try to handball it over his head. He doesn't do anything uh, that would be described as, um, as improvised or to the moment. He seems to me somebody who's always been the biggest kid. He's always been the big, best mark and the longest kick in the team. And he hasn't really done much more for his football. Okay, we'll, get, we'll have a look at the grand final now. But in a word, what do the Giants need personnel-wise? Can I tell you something very interesting happened at 11.16 SEN on Saturday night? A program with Stephen Peake and Tony Sheehan had Luke Power in. Luke Power, who's been at GWS for the last five years, not this year, said he wasn't going to name the players. He'd rather talk to their face-to-face. But they are six to eight players in the side that played on the weekend that aren't hard enough to win big finals football games. Well, that sums up exactly what I was going to say. They, they need more grit and they need more role players. I believe Leon Cameron has a role to play in this. Players need to be developed. Uh, St Kilda picked up a player called Jack Steele. Not the prettiest footballer, but he is hard. He tackles and his numbers in that department are good. He would have stayed at GWS, but he only had three games there last year. Leon Cameron, much like the player he was, seems to favour the idea of having in the same team Whitfield along with Kelly, Sheil, Coniglio, Scully. They should have kept Steele and developed Steele. They should have kept an Adams, kept a Trelaw. A lot of their grunt plays elsewhere. All right, let's talk about the two sides of the left. This is it, the big game of the year. Um, who wins? We've had one clash already, round six. I don't know how instructive it'll be. Um, it was interesting, the first quarter of that game, 11 goals were kicked, and it was six goals to five. I think Richmond kicked six. Um, it was almost like they were trying to beat Adelaide, uh, playing Adelaide's game. It didn't work because they got uh, out of the Crows kicked 16 goals after quarter time and won by... 70-odd points. So what sort of game will it be? I think if Richmond's to have a chance, they need to make it a bit of a grind and they need to make it tough and tight and goals at a premium. Um, I think if if Adelaide... I'm prepared to say this. If Adelaide gets the space it desires, it will win without any shadow of a doubt. Richmond have to deny them space and time. That's the only way the Tigers can win, I think. What I loved about Richmond on the weekend, was there were five goals kicked in seven minutes in that game. Richmond kicked the first two in a minute, and within six minutes, the GWS Giants were in front. Five goals in seven minutes. At half-time, it was five goals apiece. Richmond had reduced the game 
to their terms very quickly. Well, that's exactly what they need to do. Um, so the, the weather forecast favours them. It's expected to rain all week it? with a showery 16 on Saturday. Yeah, that'll help. Yeah, I think that'd help them. Uh, not that I don't... I mean, I th- see, this is it. I, I think the Crows... We're so sort of awestruck by their potency on the scoreboard, I reckon we can overlook their hardness. You know, they're a very good contested team. Yeah, and that's what we are going to get. We are going to get the two teams at the end of the season that have been able to apply pressure and <clears throat> absorb pressure but continue to apply and apply. Now, part of my media watch look later in the program will touch on this, but I want to bring it up now. Richmond have reversed the results against every team that's beaten them this year. They lost to Fremantle, they thrashed them. They lost to St Kilda, shamefully, they thrashed them. They lost to Geelong, uh, they beat them. They lost to GWS and they've beaten them twice. That's interesting. And they play Adelaide and they lost to them Mm. and they look forward to doing... They've learnt. You learn more from losses than you do from wins and they really have learnt from their losses. So... Uh, okay, How, what do we think will happen? I think Richmond will try to make it a scrap. I'm not sure they're capable of doing that against the Crows. Um, I hope I'm not sounding overly confident about Adelaide winning, because I'm not. But I think they are the better team if you line them up side by side, leave the conditions out of it, whatever. I think they are the better football team. And I think they've they've passed every test that's come their way. So... Uh, I think they're on a mission too, you know. I, I, I just think, you know, they've been an incredibly resilient club. You think about all that horrible off-field stuff that's happened, the amount of good players they've lost. They just keep bouncing back. I think Don Pike's been an outstanding coach. He's been there before too, which I think is important as a, as a player. And um, they're a bit like West Coast, actually. They're, they're obviously more offensive than his West Coast side, but it stems from a defensive ethic which allows them to be offensive, if that makes sense. So um, I'm tipping Adelaide, and look, it's very early days in the week, but I'm tipping them by about 18 points. What's your tip? I'm really bullish on the Tigers. They've been able to maintain the team that they like, and there's... A real option, we don't know what the selected side will be, but the form of uh, the uh, lad in the reserves, Miles. Anthony Miles, yeah. Has been outstanding. It gives him another midfield option, and he kicks goals as well. Remember, the more they can bolster their midfield, the more time Dusty can spend up forward, and he's a danger up forward. Danger almost being the type of player that he is danger field like. Their form is superb. Their finals form, they have ground like they like you said they want to do. They have brought the game onto their terms twice against Geelong and GWS. And then in the premiership quarter, the third quarter, in the second half of those both third quarters, they have, bang, taken the game apart. Very impressive. They thrashed two teams leading into the finals. Their form is not just that of stoppers or negators. They've really found some class, some edge. Rioli showed with confidence what any small forward can do, and they've got four of them. Look, I like them. I love them at the G. And I'll just say this. Both teams have similar finals form. They both handled G Long and GWS comfortably. Adelaide did it in Adelaide. Richmond did it at the G. Adelaide come to the G. Richmond stay at the G and win. Okay, by how much? 
17 to 28 points. No, I'll, I'll give, go give, 24. Okay, 24. so Mark Fine is with the Tigers, 24 points. I'm going with Adelaide, 18 points. Who will be right? We'll find out. On Footyology, hot or not. Okay, then we all know how this works. I'm going first, Finey, and I've got a hot to start with. We touched on him before, Paul Seedsman. Talk about being in the right place at the right time. Missed uh, most of the first half of the season. I think it was a groin injury. Spent a, a heap of time in the sandfall. Comes in. Um, he'd played one game for the season until the last round against West Coast. But he was good that day, and he's been terrific in both their finals. 19 possessions and two important goals in the preliminary final. Gives them more of that outside run. Um, you know, people have often questioned his kicking, but I, I, he turned it over a couple of times, but I think he adds a lot of value and just gives that midfield even more depth. Uh, it's been a superb um, exhibition by him, and he couldn't have picked a better time to do it. And given that he's won an Anzac medal, you sort of start to think this is a guy that can rise to the big occasion. So well done, Paul Seedsman. My first hot is the 4.45 start for the game between Richmond and GWS. I think it worked really well. The game itself had two different parts to it. It had the daytime, it had the nighttime. Football was good in both. The crowd was huge. The build-up to me seemed pretty natural. I'm not saying it's a time that needs to be used for a grand final, but people who thought it was a, an odd time for a preliminary final I think would have uh, forgotten it as soon as the game started. And that first goal by Kane Lambert, that, that could have been any time, anywhere. Football was on and it worked. Okay, I'm up next. I'm going with a knot and uh, KB's going to love me. Clash jumpers. Not just this thing about should Richmond be allowed to wear their original jumper, but the whole issue because... It's too ad hoc. It's all over the place. And there are times when sides should wear clash jumpers by rights and they don't. And there are times when they really don't need to and they do. There doesn't seem to be a concrete policy. Every time you, you say, oh, it's because of A, B or C, someone will come up with an example that disproves it. And what I don't get most about this particular one is why until three years ago, there was not considered enough of a clash for either side to revert to a, a different strip. All of a sudden, for the last three years, we've decided there is. So what was that saying? Why did it take us so long to work out that there was a, a clash that needed rectifying? I, th- I think the whole thing, look, I know other sports do it. It's not a huge deal. Like, a, you know, I, I'm not sort of worked up to the point KB is about it, but... I just think in this case, it is unnecessary. And uh, I'm a traditionalist. I think unless it's a blindingly obvious clash, there's no need for it. So it's just yet another case of a problem being made where one didn't need to exist. My not, my second is a not. Do you know there are party poopers, people who were offended and want to know how a small group of GWS fans were able to bring trumpets into the ground? I don't know if you caught it, but uh, amongst their very small number, they were outnumbered 3,000 to 1, I reckon, was a little group of trumpeters who played the GWS theme a la the Barmy Army every time they kicked a goal. I thought it was um, cute. And, let's be honest, when you've only got 150 fans in a 95,000 crowd, you're allowed certain fortification, aren't you? 
Fair enough. Did you hear them? They were good. I didn't. You don't hear anything in the press box. Was, they were really cute. Couldn't get someone to open the window. We'll on grand final day. Uh, last one for me is a hot, and it goes to the Tiger Army. And I had a, I got there very early on Saturday, so I was having a good long wander around the car parks and the concourse and the surrounds. And I'm glad to say, finally, I felt like I was back in the 70s. I felt like I was on, I just got off the train on the Glen Waverley line. I was surrounded by Richmond supporters wearing Peter Wusher Welsh duffel coats. Could have sworn I, I saw a few camel t-shirts with smokes tucked up, uh, tucked up the sleeve. Uh, Richmond supporters, they're really old school. You know, they're beer drinkers. They're not uh, Chardonnay sippers. They're, uh, you know, they're, a lot of them are smoking. Uh, that's not a good thing. We don't encourage it. But there's a real old worldliness about the Tiger Army, and it makes me feel like it's the halcyon days of being a football supporter again. So they're loud, they're vocal. Um, they've been through four decades, nearly four decades of pain, and... Uh, this has been a really cathartic experience for them and uh, a lot of us are enjoying the stuff that goes around the side coming good again. So well done, Tiger Army. Really added something to this season. And my final hot is Dion Prestia. He was the big ticket item at Richmond at the start of the season as far as recruiting goes. And for the first half of the year, he was not living up to the billing. In fact, they were in the top four and a lot of Richmond's supporters and Pundits, journalists were saying, this bloke's just not delivering. This has not worked out. Why, why is Richmond paying six hundred grand a year for Dion Prestia? But as the seasons wore on, a combination of run-with roles and just traditional midfield work has seen him become an important part of a very strong midfield. And the more work he does there, affords Dustin the opportunity to go forward. He's now worth his ticket. Well done coming from a long way back. A lot of character shown by Dion Prestia in 2017. Good stuff. Points well made. Short, to the point, unusually short for us. Should be more of it. On Footyology, Media Watch. Okay, it's that time again. It's that segment, Finey, that uh, makes all our colleagues, when we bump into them in ensuing days, go, oh, I heard you giving so-and-so a touch-up in your... Media Watch segment, well, it's not just about touching people up. We'd like to think we're constructively criticising certain media practices. Um, it's also been some interesting feedback from the punters, finally. They feel like, I know a few guys feel like um, we're giving them some sort of inner view of how the media works in a footy sense. So I thought grand final week, it's probably an obvious one, but it's already, we're barely into grand final week. I'm already annoyed by what I'd call cut and paste type coverage of grand final week. And you see it everywhere. You see it in the electronic media. You see it in the newspapers. And if you're not getting my drift, I'm talking about, you know, those shots on the TV news, groups of Richmond fans standing At the Cricketers around, Arms Hotel, yeah, Swan Street, Richmond. All going, go yeah, the dogs, yep. all in unison. Yeah. Um, Brad, was it Brad Johnson who was whipping up a group of Richmond drinkers before the game singing the Richmond club song? But I mean, if it wasn't them, it'd, it'd be anyone. You, if you you know got sort of little snippets out of uh, TV news bulletins, particularly for the last twenty years, it's virtually interchangeable one year to the next, and it comes from the same school as incredibly hot day in Melbourne. So we're either going to go to the zoo and feed 
the polar bears fish in ice blocks or watch people in nursing homes eating... You know, they have like um, either uh, an icy pole ice or... Ice blocks. Yeah, what are the ones that... Zupa dupers, you know. I don't want to see a 90-year-old sucking a Zupa duper. When I started on my son, News Pictorial, we used to have a joke about this and the cold one was, brr, what a chiller. That yeah. was the headline. And the hot one was, phew, what a scorcher. <laughs> and the picture would be, um, yeah, either snow at the foot of a dandenongs or um, people would occasionally resort to breaking an egg on the footpath yeah. and seeing how long it took to fry. Or, or late night, sort of, it's 8 o'clock and the beaches are still packed here at St Kilda. Yeah. So, I mean, okay, let's apply this to a grand final sense. I don't know if it's got a consequence of an annual event and so it's sort of, okay, what do we do last time? Let's do it again. But, I mean, surely there's better, more in-depth takes on things. Now, just as, as an example, uh, credit to Fox Footy. The, the doc, did you see the documentary about the Crows' 97 flag? Yeah, I've watched it four times. Are you, I have not watched one minute of that game. I'm certainly oh, not yeah, going to watch sorry. a documentary. It was, it. Well, it wasn't just about that grand final. Me no care. Yeah, okay, okay. Well, let me tell you, it, it was really good, I thought. They really you know, put a lot of work into it. There were some really good interviews with players involved. And it really went from the start of the Crows up till winning that flag. But um, surely with Richmond now, and Fox Footy have done a thing on Richmond in the past too, when, ironically, you know, when things were looking pretty grim. Um, but... You know, surely now that the happy days are here again, there's great stories to be had about the Tigers. You know, that whole period, the various ups and downs, mostly downs, revisit the 1980 grand final and, you know, catch up with not just the obvious like KB and not that there's anything wrong with KB, but, you know, go and find um, uh, Stephen Mount. Or, or, you know, someone like that. One of the, uh, or uh, you know. Tempany, who broke his Bruce, leg? Bruce, oh, that was in 82. Bruce yep. Tempany broke his yep. arm in the yep. grand final. Broke his but, arm, yeah. In fact, I was going to say him, but I don't think he played in the 1980 Greg grand Strawn final. Greg Strawn was a star. Greg Strawn. You know, just guys like that. And, you know, I, I know the what the argument will be. Oh, that's just, uh, you know, the real diehards. I mean, the average bloke in the street wouldn't know who Greg Strawn was. Well, Tell him, find, who, tell him who. Tell he, him who he is. Yeah, yeah. Right. tell him the story of that premiership. Tell the people that aren't initiated what sort of club Richmond has been. Why being so successful during the late sixties, early seventies, up to that era, meant that the failure, um, the the failures afterwards, weighed so heavily on the whole club, and really brought about that continual merry-go-round of coaches and administrations. That's an integral part of the story. And there's some real depth and layers to that. All right, so, so here, here's, here's a story that absolutely should be told. A Richmond s- cycle into, and, and it turned out for 35 years to be what was a, a real, I think, self-inflicted, self-inflicted um, it's sort of a cycle of, of poor recruiting, of, of false dawns, etc., had at its beginning uh, the Phil Walsh incident. Their, their absolute hatred of losing Phil Walsh to uh, Collingwood uh, was impetus for, um, you know, it was impetus for a series of... Um, oh, I went, but no, before Phil Walsh, it was uh, post... 
they were very pissed off about losing the 82 grand final, which yep. they shouldn't have lost. And you had in, in the uh, aftermath of that, you had um, Cloak go to Collingwood. You had Reigns go to Collingwood. You had Brian Wood walk out and end up at Essendon. And that was really the start of that transfer war with, with um, Collingwood, which almost sent both clubs broke. Wasn't Phil Walsh central? No, Walsh. Well, Walsh was. Uh, Walsh won the best first year player in the league in eighty three with for, the Pies for for the Pies. Yeah, and then so, he went to Richmond. And yeah, then, and then he went to Richmond. And, yeah. and Collingwood, Collingwood were you know very dark on it, and it, it was part of the tit for tat. Yeah, well, the the tit, the tit for tat thing went on for a good four or five years, and and by the so, by, so to me, Phil Walsh has a story to tell for both clubs. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, no, I'm not negating it. I'm just saying, like, it, it, the genesis of the downfall is probably losing that '82 grand final, and you know, a club with less sort of ego and less um, recent success might have taken that in their stride, but they. And it was symptomatic, too, of the old sort of way of running the club that Graham Richmond and Ian Wilson and these guys, that, that was just what you did. You know, you went and got players from other clubs. And, yep, that's right. And you thumbed your nose at the rest of the competition. So there you go. I mean, we've just given the script for a, what could be a great doco. Um, what else could you talk about? Uh, let's look at Adelaide. Uh, uh, well, I, I mentioned that Adelaide doco. That, that has been made, and it's a great story. Tell me there's not a great human uh, doco to be made about the last few years of the Crows, not just the tragic death of Phil oh, Walsh, absolutely. but how, how about Dean Bailey, you know, uh, uh, who was assistant there and he died. Yeah, I, I think that I think that will be part of the dialogue. But why can't it be now? Uh, this is what I'm saying. You know, like. But I, you know what I want to say. Look, I, I'd go. I'd go away from that. Actually, I'd, I'd take the image of Taylor Walker sitting in that stand with that can of beer. At a point when his football seemed to be an irrelevance to him and an aggravation to the coach, Neil Craig, I think, was the coach at the time. I think it was prior to Sanderson. Yeah. No, I think it was when Sanderson was there. But go on. Yeah. And, but you know, this was a point where Taylor Walker was uh, potentially a talent lost and uh, a, prob- a problematic young, a problematic young mulleted bogan from Broken Hill. Causing problems at the club. Mm. Then he is invested with the captaincy, much to his surprise. He grows, the club, the team grows, and it's a really interesting journey for Taylor Walker. I'm fascinated by it. So, again, getting back to the question I asked before, why why are major media organisations, when it comes to things like this, committed to, seemingly committed to superficiality? Do they think that the audience can't cope with that level of detail? Is it a is it a comment on the attention span of society at large? Um, I mean, it's pretty depressing if it is, and I, I reckon there's probably an element of truth about that. But you know, we're we're always hearing like, and we've talked a heap about like Channel 7's footy coverage and whatever. And there's always this undercurrent of we have to appeal to people that aren't that into footy. But isn't the way you interest people? not by repeating banal cliches, but by finding and personalising really interesting detail that draws them in. You know, they're not just sort of watching it in the background. It's like people that listen to music as a background aid to doing the dishes rather than really being immersed in the music. I mean, I'm big on that. You you and I both love our music. You know what I mean. You know, people that 
sort of say, oh, I like a nice tune, but they're not really listening to it. Um, are they the people the media are catering for in a, in a football sense with this sort of stuff that goes on in the biggest week of the season? Unfortunately, there is a real lowest common denominator attitude with broadcasting and with media in Australia. It is this real belief by those people in power that the greater bulk of viewers and readers and listeners are... Idiots. Yeah, need to be treated like um, primary school students, that they're not, they're not up for... They're, they're the sort of people that need their, their food cut up for them rather than tackling you know, a steak with a knife and fork. Well, why do, we, well, why do they think that? A, it's a cop-out because it makes for easier TV. It makes for repetitive broadcasting. You can just uh, dial it in so you don't have to push the boat out and you're still going to get the results. And you know what? In TV, if every network executive thinks the same way, they can all sit back and enjoy the big salaries without working too hard. If everybody works to that lowest common denominator, and I think that's where we find ourselves. Where is our... We've discussed it before, our ESPN-type documentary in-depth delving into sport. I'm glad you said that because I was just about to come in and say this to me is symptomatic of the shabby treatment of the game's history, by particularly by TV networks. Uh, you know, all even the AFL itself, to be honest, with their website, which caters to the here and now brilliantly, but they... It's always frustrated to me that they never make enough of their archival stuff. And well, well, they've been... I can tell you this as a fact. You know, the wonderful Encyclopedia of Footballers by Russell Holmesby and Jim Mayne, yeah. which is so important to anybody who loves the game. Yeah. They've been in, there's an dis- ongoing discussion. Now, that should be part of the AFL website. You should be able to type in a player's name and get all of his information and more on the website. Yeah. And they are dithering over that. Can you believe it? So, okay, let's, to get back to that initial point, let's say that we were running Channel 7 or Fox Footy or a newspaper and we said enough this week. We said enough of the face painting and, you know, um, you know, bands of people yelling out, go Tigers and stuff. And we gave them what we've just spent 10 minutes talking about. What would the reaction be, do you think? It would be... Do you think people would embrace it, or do you think? Of course, they'd embrace it because if if people if people mindlessly just <coughs> oh grand final uh, Swan Street Richmond into the pub, if that's all acceptable as a as a sort of background white noise to the game, then to be probed and prodded and given something interesting, uh, surely. Opening your eyes is more satisfying than keeping them closed. This is where the big picture is so important because I think that if we fed the punters more of that cultural, you know, in a football sense, football culture, football history, um, it would engage people more. But you would create future generations of footy fans that had a really deep-seated appreciation of the game and were probably more invested in passing that on to their children, it didn't just become an alternative form of entertainment that became more disposable. And that's what really worries me about younger footy fans growing up. Do they have the same level of attachment to the game and the clubs and the players? Um, do, are, they as, are they as passionate about it 
as our generation was. Okay, so if you could write any story, you were given licence to do something different in the lead-up to this game, what, do you, what would it be? Okay, so we're talking written stuff now. Um, I, I would do... Uh, I'd have a really good look at the, the rise and fall and rise of Richmond. I think it's a fascinating story. And people might say, oh, it's been done. But has it been encapsulated looking, you know, like, like from the moment I talked about, the moment they lose the 1982 grand final. Now, who at 5pm on, I can't remember the date, but on that last Saturday in September in 1982, uh, David Parkin and Mike Fitzpatrick are holding the Premiership Cup for Carlton. Richmond's been, you know, is really feeling the pain. Who at that moment would have dreamed it'll be 35 years oh, until you're playing in a grand final. Extraordinary. So... And it comes... It's an important and, story. And it comes out of nowhere. Yeah. We always thought, Richmond fans always thought, we have to build up to this. We're five years away. We're four years away. Oh, we're back to five years away. At the end of last season, they would have thought they're five years away again. The AFL certainly thought they were because they stripped them of all their Friday night games. And, and okay, I'm trying to think of an Adelaide equivalent. Now, we talked about, you know, the build-up to that first flag. I, I've always found, I don't know about you, but I, I've always found Adelaide a more authentic, of the start-up clubs, a more authentic sort of football culture about them than the other start-up clubs, including West Coast. Well, they had a birth... They had a a birthing. The birthing was that they weren't Port Adelaide. Yeah. Port so there Adelaide, was a rallying point. Well, Port Adelaide wanted to be yeah. that licence. Yeah. And it was decided that they weren't, which meant supporters of all the other Sandful clubs virtually uh, banded together. No Port Adelaide fans bought in because they, to- they expected to be the first team in and were waiting to be the second team in. So every other South Australian became a Crow supporter. Okay, so isn't, um, isn't that a good uh, starting point? Who, who are Adelaide? They are genuine supporters. Yeah. I mean, they, are, they have been knitting red, yellow and blue. They've been, you go to any pub, as soon as you cross the border, there are Crows. The colours, they are a real team. And when they play in the grand finals and finals over here, they come over en masse. They swamped. Victoria in 97 and 98. They did. The people of Ballarat are still counting the, uh, the pennies from good, good tourism and look forward to welcoming them back again. So is that not a great story that we could do? It's a great grand final. It's why it's a beautiful grand final. Well, and I hope as many of these two groups of fans that have made the story what it is yeah. get into the grand final. Now, just as an extension of this about media coverage, one thing, and I've, I've ranted about this before, but... One thing that I find quite annoying now is that you'll have the build-up to the grand final. The grand final gets played out, and within 48 hours, the entire football media has moved on and is talking about prospective trades or, you know, it's all it's all done and dusted. And I used to love that week post-grand final of reflection on yep. the game, you know, pin, um, pinpointing the... The important moments. How did they happen? What happened? Uh, that to me, and the, the flashpoint for me um, with regard to that was 2012 when we had what I consider the best grand final I've ever seen. I wasn't there in 1970. Um, and, you know, by the Sunday night or Monday morning, it was all about Brendan Goddard going to Essendon from St Kilda. So, understood. I think what you want 
can still be sought out. It can still be found. All that deep analysis is there, but you'll have to sort through various forms of media to find it. Where When we were growing up, the only media that covered football covered that element of the game. Yeah. So we wanted we turned on our traditional sports coverage or our footy shows, read the Herald or the Sun from the back, and we got deep game analysis. And now you have to seek it out. Well, the other irony here is um, that you know, I think the Herald Sun might have, did they have 18 pages on Richmond or they were talking about special yep. souvenirs or whatever? Um, and I'm sure, you know, other media outlets will do similar things, but you you sort of already know it's going to be pretty superficial, don't you? Yeah, of course. It'll, it'll be the oldest supporter. It'll be KB. It, it, oh, I know what we had tonight on the news. I, uh, sorry, uh, just after going on the news, the rich, expectant um, Richmond supporter who went into labour. Well, that is a bit of a story. She was at the game, <laughs> she was at the game oh, and only lasted on. a half. Every Collingwood grand final, that would have happened to half a dozen expectant mothers. No, I think you're talking about the conception, not the... <laughs> <laughs> um, so what's the single most cliched grand final week story for you? It's the desperate... It's the queuing up for tickets. Yeah. When, when, you know, so those seats in front of the MCG, holding them up... I got them. <laughs> I've got them. Yeah, yeah. In other words, up yours. The rest, <laughs> yeah. So that's it's now being replaced by the ballot. But you know, I just if I could write a story, there's a really interesting story about Richmond and Adelaide, and a moment of uh, the two clubs came into contact, and it's when Richmond were really keen to get Kane Johnson, and Danny Frawley tells a story that to get him, he made a terrible mistake, the worst mistake of his coaching career. What was that? He got rid of a player who was not the best player in the team, but he was that lifeblood, that first picked, always hard at it, true Richmond player. But to get Kane Johnson, they lost Jason Tawney. Now, Jason Tawney wasn't the most important player at Richmond, but they lost, he said, a whole lot more when he left. Yeah. And it's just an interesting story. Kane Johnson would go on and skip at the Tigers. Yeah. But you don't give up your heart and soul. And... Richmond have hung on to their heart and soul. There was questions about Jack Rewald, about Dustin Martin. Yeah. They've hung on to it, and they're now in a grand final. I reckon there's a story to be written Well, there. actually, that's that's a, a rich vein of stories, the traffic between the two clubs. I mean, I just thought of another one, uh, Richard Tambling. I mean, that's a bit of a dirty word for uh, Tiger fans, but yeah. he, he ended up at Adelaide. I reckon there might have been a couple more too, but again... Well, Ivan Maric, who on the uh, weekend yeah, yeah. played out his last game, found a home at Richmond after not being able to win the And was really, spot. really good for them, yeah. So, Just as an adjunct to what you're talking about, the currency, the trade in uh, facts about this grand final yeah. is so superficial. I have heard on, I've heard on everything from sports broadcast to the SBC business analyst tell me that no player in the upcoming grand final has ever played in a grand final before. Really? First time since 1898. <laughs> mm. Now, I wonder how many people that have parroted that 1898 absolute tripe know that, that in that year Fitzroy beat Essendon, but it was also the first year of the VFLs had a grand final. So by definition, no one had had grand final experience. I mean, that is just a, you know, the first time since 1898. What was the time before that? 1732? <laughs> uh, there are better facts. 
we spoke about one earlier, Richmond reversing. That was trend, a good one. The that trend was a really good one. Losses. Have against, you got another one? Losses against other teams. No, but there are. I'm saying that there are a whole lot of other facts to be, you know, to to dig in this game, and that's one that I liked. I liked that they've reversed the results. But we'll see how many times we hear that compared to then no one's had grand final experience. <laughs> Well, good discussion. Once again, finally, we've managed to uh, theoretically at least solve the problems of uh, football coverage in the media. And uh, hopefully some executives out there are are listening and taking it on board. I'm tipping they're probably not, um, but uh, maybe one day they will. On Footyology, Roko and Finey's rant off. Rightio, rant time, grand final edition. Finey, we've got to be pumped, we've got to be angry, we've got to be eloquent with our angst. Are you ready? I am ready. I'm going to count you in. Three, two, one, rant. I was actually considering the shortest rant ever. My, Well, we do rants, don't we? I was just going to say Alex rants and be done with it. But no, I have a rant. For 35 years, 60,000 plus Richmond supporters have made the short trek from the streets and little uh, rat rat alleys of Richmond to the MCG and then staggered back home in a ritual known as they keep on getting big crowds. They've sat through some horrific years of the Richo years with all the petulance and hopes and promises dashed and then the sadder years without Richo with Jeff Hogg and other years that just amounted to nothing or ninth or even worse a transfer of coaches and a lot of mocking and chicken manure down a punt road. So 60,000 go every week, but on grand final day, there's no room for this 60,000. So I have devised the ordered cull to make sure that every Richmond fan that has been to horrors of the past is there on Saturday. In this order, removed from the MCG, should be on grand final day, first of all, any child that doesn't barrack for Richmond or Adelaide, what indulgent parent has to get their Essendon-supporting 12-year-old or little Bobby who barracks for Carlton at nine will come and see a grand final? That's selfish. They take up a seat. They're out. I don't care. By the ears, out. Number two, those nerds that proudly proclaim, this is my 43rd consecutive grand final. Well, you know what? You're a selfish bastard. 43 in a row... How many times has your team played? If you're buried for St Kilda, you're more bastard than anybody else. Get out and stop this with your nerdy streak. How about the drinkers at bars? I guarantee you there'll be 2,000 people that never get away from the bars at the MCG and just sing piss all day. Get out. Go to the topless bar across the road. Now, I might sound a little bit like Trump here, but foreigners... Why are the Chinese and Japanese and Americans trying to work out what football is on grand final day? You know when you should work out what football is? During the JLT series. And finally, heavily pregnant women. I heard there was one during the preliminary final, selfishly taking up a seat for half the game. If you're over six months, don't come to the game. Because I'm telling you, grand finals is no place to deliver. Well... It is a place to deliver. A seat for true Richmond supporters this Saturday at the MCG. 
Oh, that was passionate. It was, uh, was, gee, it was hard. And you were channeling a little bit of Donald Trump there. So apologies to um, oh, really? I all mean, our listeners from overseas. Is there anything more, you know, honestly, there are Richmond supporters who've gone for 30 years and there's some guy from Japan who's got no idea what's going on. Yes, Mr. Ichimura. This is, the ball will be kicked there. But hang on, what about that? I'm, I'm going, this is going to be my 47th grand final in a row. Selfish anorak. I'm, I'm proud of that. You're a working journalist. Okay, all right. Well, but you know the ones. I must go. I've been to the last 44. <laughs> well. And I must go to this one. Funny you say that. I'm batting for Melbourne. That's what I'm going to touch on in my rant as soon as you count me in. All right. <clears throat> Murray <clears throat> Alex Rance. I'm pissed off about Grand Final Week, Finey. It should be the greatest week of the year for football lovers, but more and more I reckon us diehards are getting shoved out of the way for every bloody theatre-going Johnny-come-lately who doesn't give a toss about anything until they smell the scent of yet another big event. You know the type. They've been infiltrating the Spring Carnival for a long time. The only time they pretend to give us stuff about cricket is on Boxing Day. Now they're about to descend upon us again. The grand final ticketing issue is an old chestnut, sure. But this year, more than 95,000 members of both Richmond and Adelaide are going to miss out. Yes, that's true. 95,000. Yes, the AFL has marginally increased member allocations. But the league still gives thousands and thousands of tickets to non-competing clubs. It also sells off truckloads of corporate packages before the finals even start. Corporates account for about 17,000 of each grand final crowd. And we know before the grand final even starts, the atmosphere won't be as good as a preliminary final because there'll be too many people taking selfies in front of their plates of smoked salmon in the MCG dining rooms instead of watching the game. And now it's not just on the day. Virtually the whole MCG car park will be given over to corporate tents and stages all week. And as to the Brownlow medal, when exactly did that stop being an award for the best player in the AFL and start becoming a bloody fashion show? The media aren't much help. The Herald Sun the other day ran a retrospective on 15 years of Brownlow medal fashion. Quote, Brownlow medal night is really all about the red carpet style, unquote. Give me a spell. Give me Graham Teasdale in his brown velvet suit any day over some 21-year-old girlfriend of a player wearing something by some two-bit designer we don't care about. One of the great things about Grand Final Week has always been the way the expectation builds. The injury and tribunal concerns, the potential ins and outs, the training sessions, that knot and the pity of your stomach on Grand Final Eve as you can't get to sleep and end up watching a replay of a 1970 Grand Final again on the marathon at 2am. We don't need a sense of expectation foisted upon us. We don't need every spare second filled with some faux event that's an excuse for some pissant socialite to try to convince us they really care about something other than their own profile. On grand final day, I want to see Richmond supporters wearing their old Michael Roach jumpers looking nervous about what's ahead. I want Adelaide fans who've driven eight hours across the border to revive the spirit of 1997. I don't want shots of groups of hoi polloi dressed to the nines sipping flutes of champagne. I want cans of VB, packets of camel filters tucked up a t-shirt. And if I see Lily and Frank anywhere near the MCG, as Terry Wallace would have put it, I'll spew up. That was similar to mine. So the listeners can choose their favourite. <laughs> That's what we used to do on our TV No, show. I think we both covered off on our desire, and it will fall on deaf ears, that grand final tickets go to the most deserving. I know you don't like the corporates, actually, but there's one other group that should not be watching grand finals. Who's that? 
the performers from before the game. <laughs> you know, in 2009, there was like a small bay with 20 flamenco dancers. When you think there are 20 hardcore Crows or Tiger fans yeah. watching on TV and there's a flamenco dancer going, you what is football? So what, you finish your act, you get yanked. Yanked not only off stage but straight out of the out. ground. Did straight out. <laughs> Why not? And, hey, remember we were talking about stories less common before the grand final. Yeah. After the grand final, when Sydney won their first grand final for seventy odd years, there was one story that really tickled my fancy. What was that? And we could have another one this year. They found a bloke called Sydney Swan. <laughs> and he was great because he, he was a rugby fan and he just he had no interest in the game he goes yeah I'm happy they won he lived in Sydney so if Adelaide win will they look for Adelaide Crow an yeah. old an old woman yeah. <laughs> well done alright uh, got to wrap it up there thanks for joining us everyone um, have a great grand final week it is all jokes aside it is a, a fantastic week and Let's hope and pray, uh, given the sort of finals we've largely seen this year, that we get a close and exciting grand final. May the best team win. But finally, as you know, we always finish off every week with an obscure uh, musical connection to the subject matter. But this week, it's not obscure at all. Richmond are in the grand final again. It's been a long time. They're the talk of the town we both live in. So I thought it only appropriate that our lyric quote this week come from that um, essential early 80s anthem by Survivor, Eye of the Tiger. And I quote, It's the eye of the tiger. It's the thrill of the fight, rising up to the challenge of our rival. And the last known survivor stalks his prey in the night, and he's watching us all with the eye of the tiger. And there's only one more thing to add to that, Finey, and it's the very first lyric in that song, and it goes, Rise it up! We'll see you next week.